In this episode of the Exploring Information Security Podcast, how to build a home lab. Welcome to the Exploring Information Security Podcast, where you learn, explore, and grow your security mindset. I am your host, Timothy D. Block, and in this episode, we will be exploring how to build a home lab. And with me today to do that is Chris Madalena of eCentire. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well, Tim. How about you? Good, good. So let's get right into this. And yeah. I guess we should mention before we actually get into it, so we're not really getting into it, and that all might be edited <laughs> out. Um, we are going to be talking potentially. Uh, we haven't gotten any acceptance letters yet for anything we're hoping mm-hmm. this week. Uh, but we are going to be talking at some conferences this summer and maybe more about how to build a home lab. Um, yeah. We've submitted to Circle City Con and Detroit B-Sides. I will already be speaking at Show Me Con uh, as more of just a talk. So, uh, mm-hmm. and Chris may or may not join me there. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. But um, yeah, so what is a home lab? So a home lab, uh, in my mind, can be really anything uh, that you do at home to try to improve your skills or uh, learn more about uh, it's probably something along the line of networking uh, or security. Um, a lot of people think of a home lab as either, uh, and I think this is kind of the concept we're hoping to correct with our training, Tim, is a lot of people think they have to have like a desk in their house that has some old servers, a switch, and a router, and kind of a whole like, actual physical setup, um, which I, I remember you know, years ago, back when I first got started, uh, taking some courses for you know, like the MSCE certification and actually having to go into a lab at a, you know, at a college where they mm-hmm. had like a test lab active and uh, directory environment set up. If you wanted to do anything like that at home, you really did need to have a server with like a KVM switch maybe. It was a whole thing. But now you can just set up a virtual lab at home with VMware Workstation or VirtualBox uh, and you can have a whole lab just on your computer. Yeah, or people will host home labs. Um, OWASP, I, I guess they're not really mm-hmm. home, but OWASP is a good one. So GOAT.js is one I'm starting to get into. And that's, uh, I mean, you can download it and set up your own version of it, but they also have like a publicly available link and uh, you're able to go poke at it from there. So like you don't actually need any hardcore stuff. Uh, you can, if you have a Chromebook, I mean, simple as simple as that, you can start toying around with some of the stuff. You're kind of limited in what you can do, but you know, a home lab. Like, I, I like the definition that you had with, as far as it being something that you do at home. So, if you can open up a browser, you can set up a home lab uh, for certain things. So, why is a home lab important? So, I think a home lab is is often overlooked as. Uh, as unimportant just because if you don't have a specific idea uh, of what you're going to use that home lab for, people don't really have the motivation to set one up. But it really doesn't take too much to set it up, and you can actually get a whole lot out of it. When I was first getting started uh, doing red team uh, sorts of things, I set up a home lab, and I learned a whole lot. Uh, That's one of the things. I I have a few people that uh, I'm kind of helping out, checking in on, that are trying to go after their OSCP that when they asked me, what did you do to get ready for all that? Uh, my home lab helped a whole lot because uh, in the months leading up to when I was going to start the PWK class, 
I did a lot of uh, just attacking uh, virtual machines and poking around uh, so that by the time I got into uh, the PWK and kind of into off, uh, offensive securities lab environment, I was pretty accustomed to uh, kicking off some of those attacks. I already had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do. And not only that, I knew how I wanted to set up that Kali VM I was going to use. And I spent a day arranging my VM uh, and I was good to go. Uh, so it really helped me a lot. And it's actually something I use pretty frequently even today. Um, now, if I want to test out something um, or if I want to uh, try uh, test out a configuration, maybe I'm actually going to use my actual home network. I can set it up in a virtual machine and see how I like it. Yeah, and so you you focus kind of on the red team uh, in our talk. I'll probably focus more on the blue team, although we'll probably intermix because there's you always want to be on both sides uh, of red team and blue team, or at least have an understanding of the other side. And then, and I think you have a you have a great thing in that you've like built out your home network because you wanted to get better at you know you t you tell organizations they need to segment their network, but you need to kind of know how to do that or how to give them some guidance or direction on how to how to get that started. And so you've done that at home. Yeah, I, that was one thing I started a while back. Um, Probably around like 2005, I had a job uh, where I was coordinating uh, and assisting with projects. You know, that involved like running cable and you know getting some new branch offices kind of up and running from just a bunch of dry, you know, just an office with drywall uh, and you know, trying to get them all wired up, uh, get the switches and everything we needed installed, uh, and getting them up and running to a fully functioning office and. Uh, at the time, you know, I'm just talking to contractors, and I had really no understanding of what it was they were doing. Uh, and we happened to buy a house uh, around that same time, so I said, "Well, hey, you know what? I'm going to learn how to uh, install this patch panel and wire up the house." And I learned a lot from that. Uh, and then, for for a long time, uh, yeah, it was just it was a flat network. You know, I just I had a patch panel that fed into a switch that you know, went into the uh, into the router, and that was that was the end of it. Uh, but yeah, as, as time went on, I got more and more interested in both just trying to make my home network more secure, but also yeah, practicing some of the things that uh, kind of practicing what I preach and is also <laughs> trying to under, better understand uh, how that stuff worked and what effect it would have on my network um, and see if I could live with it. So yeah, I, I went out and eventually bought uh, some VLAN aware switches and set up VLANs uh, at my house. And actually segregated my network so that there was a VLAN just for uh, kind of the single purpose devices, which are like video streaming and, and gaming, like my Xbox and uh, streaming boxes are on one VLAN. And then I have a VLAN that's just for uh, basically my work laptop uh, and then a couple of other VLANs that are more for management and then um, some of the, the other PCs that don't really need to have access to uh, those other VLANs. And it, it's worked out really well. And it's uh, I learned a lot of a lot of things along the way. I wrote up a blog post where I, uh, <laughs> I talked about how I spent an entire day kind of confusing myself because I I went after my CCNA uh, for a while, and also at previous jobs I worked with Cisco switches a lot. So when it came to trunk interfaces, I was thinking of Cisco trunking, um, and. When I got these switches, they had a trunking option. I configured trunking like it was a Cisco switch, and I wasn't getting the results I wanted, and I was kind of confused, and I was like, oh, screw it. I'll come back to this tomorrow. And I 
can't, yeah, I, I slept on it and just, it was one of those things where I suddenly realized like, oh, I was using a vendor term for not a, for a switch, not from that vendor and trunking was referring to link aggregation, not Cisco's trunking protocol. And I had really confused myself there. Uh, and it was just, a, it was a good reminder that, you know, when you're talking to people about uh, that sort of stuff, you should keep vendors in mind and your terminology in mind. And uh, so labs like that can, can also just help you reinforce some stuff you already know, uh, but maybe you've forgotten about or you're getting a little bit rusty. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think the other thing there that really sticks out to me is this labs are great for job interviews. So especially within our field, where, which is very technical, uh, you want to, and even if, you know, coming out of college, you might maybe don't have enough experience. If you show that you're trying to gain some experience or some knowledge and, you know, you, they ask you, so what have you done with this? You can say, oh, I've built this home lab at home. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I've used that, you know, I've used that in, in my own interviews that I've done. You know, what, what are you doing? Uh, you know, I've, I've talked about even something as simple as data-driven security, which is pretty much, you know, there's a data-driven security book out there. Uh, by Bob Rudis and Jay Jacobs, and I, you walk through the book, but I downloaded like R stats and did a little Python, and I mean that's that's essentially a home lab. Just walking through that book, I've done the same th same thing with Chris Sanders when I'm when I'm learning about uh, how to be a SOC analyst and you know setting up Security Onion. So you can do something as simple as that. But it, and and you know when you go into an interview for one of these jobs, you can say I've set this up, and you have. Maybe you don't have experience, but you're at least showing some effort to improve your knowledge and your understanding of the technology. Yeah, no, that, that can't really be understated. Uh, that's I know it's one of the things I look for just when I'm talking to people at a conference or something like that. One of the things I often ask people is if they if they have a lab at home, uh, because it's it is really quite easy to set up, and it does if, if you get into it. Uh, if that's really the only hurdle is you thought it was going to be difficult to get things up and running uh, and start working with some of the uh, some of the virtual machines, whether it's you want to uh, play with Security Onion because you're more interested in Blue Team or you want to attack something because uh, you're interested in Red Team, it does, it shows people that you are motivated, that you're looking for opportunities to be able to learn those new skills. So if you're going to CTFs or you're setting up a home lab, to try to learn red team skills, even if you don't have an opportunity to actually get that experience, that can actually go a really long way when you're trying to, you know, maybe break into that side of things uh, and, you know, get a job actually doing it where you can get that, you know, like a real world experience. Right. Absolutely. All right. So let's start walking through. So getting started, uh, how do you get started? What are some of the requirements, specific requirements needed for for building a home lab, and we're talking, I guess we should, this is something that you can like throw on a laptop or a, or a computer at home. Yeah, definitely. You don't need, uh, you don't need a bunch of hardware uh, or anything really all that beefy. Uh, my personal MacBook is a, I think it's a 2014 MacBook Pro, which is where I do most of my lab work on. Uh, that just has 500 gigabytes of storage, uh, a two and a half gigahertz uh, Core i7 processor, uh, the big thing is it has 16 gigabytes of RAM. Uh, RAM is the thing you'll probably find yourself running low on uh, if, as you're adding more virtual machines. Because uh, uh, looking at how much my lab currently takes up, um, I'm using about between 150 and 200 gigabytes uh, of 
storage just to store all the machines that I want to keep on hand as well as snapshots and backups and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the RAM, each one is using uh, the ones I'm going to actually have to use. Uh, so like my, my Kali machine uses four gigabytes of RAM. Uh, and then every other VM is allocated at least 512 megabytes, if not one or two gigabytes, uh, because there's nothing more frustrating than trying to to learn how to do something and having the machine be be really really slow because it only has you know you have uh, 248 uh, gigabytes of RAM or something or gigabyte yeah, that would be fine megabytes of RAM. Right. Um, well, and so let me counter let me like balance that out a little bit because I'm not uh, as big of a Mac fan. Uh, but I, I'm running a Toshiba satellite. So, yes, you can run Windows just fine <laughs> and do all this InfoSec stuff. You don't need... Yeah, this will... Yeah, whether you're using a Mac, Windows, or Linux, right. yeah, you just need the uh, the software to run it, which is pretty readily available for, for any of the platforms. Yeah, so I'm running a Core i7 like you, a CPU 2.3 gigahertz. But I'm only running... I'm about half on your memory. Uh, and I've run stuff fine. I, I maybe don't do... Uh, as intensive stuff, I don't run Kali a whole lot. I'm doing more web app stuff and um, mm -hmm. you know spinning up that kind of stuff. So you can get essentially what I'm saying is that you don't have to have 16 gigabytes. It's nice. I have it. I have it on my desktop. So you know if I'm a little short, I can just go to my desktop and do it. But that's just a laptop, you know. And I've I've uh, my Blue Team Starter Kit talk. I was running demos for five different things on that machine. Solid. It it didn't like lock up and do anything else. So, but more is better if you can get it. But you don't necessarily. I would say eight gigabytes is if you're going to run some uh, VMs. Yeah. Is probably something you want to. There's probably a minimum that you want to have. Uh, might be able to get away with four. But like you said, your Cali's taken up four by itself. So, you might yeah, which some of the which I know. Uh, I do on my work machine. Actually, only has eight gigabytes, and my Cali VM on that. Uh, I have allocated two gigabytes of of RAM, which is is acceptable. I've tried lower, and it can get kind of sluggish. So you could definitely get by with with just eight gigabytes of RAM on your laptop or your your PC. Right. Uh, you just just want to be mindful of of how much you're allocating to the different VMs and how many you're running at the same time. If you're running something like the OWASP broken web app project and a Kali machine to attack it, that's really just two VMs and dozens of web apps you can attack. Uh, all right there with just two VMs running, right. um, and you could allocate that you know two each if you want to be really nice to the broken web app project VM, and that's just taking up four gigabytes of your RAM. Yep. So what are so we've talked about uh, VM virtual machines? Let's and let's take it from a very basic level. What is a VM? So it's just like having uh, another workstation living inside of your laptop. Uh, and the really nice thing about a virtual machine is you can not on the fly, you have to shut it down, uh, but you know you can change how much memory it has, how many uh, how many processors it's able to use from your from your host computer. Um, you can also even uh, change the storage, uh, so you have a lot of control over it. Uh, the really nice thing about it is some of the networking options. So you can have a virtual network running on your laptop. You can just have to set up all of your VMs to be say using a private connection on your laptop. And they'll all be they'll all have an IP address on the same subnet that only exists on your laptop. So they can all talk to each other and no one else can connect to them from outside of your laptop, uh, you know, from somewhere else in the network you're connected to or anything like that. So which also makes it nice because you can start playing with really vulnerable VMs or 
this really broken stuff that you want to attack or try to fix without <laughs> exposing it to the internet or, or whatever network you happen to be on. Yep. Yep. And I, my, yeah, my talk was all was, was without internet. So I was able to run through my talk and all the demos without internet. So yeah, you don't even need, you can just sit on a plane and although I guess planes have Wi-Fi now, you can sit on a train. Uh, wait, they might have Wi-Fi too. Wait, you can they sit do. in the park. <laughs> oh, wait, they got Wi-Fi out there too. So yeah, you can pretty much sit anywhere. <laughs> Uh, and if you're scared of Wi-Fi, like I am, you can you know still play. So that's I think that's good. And some of the options for VMs are so Oracle has VirtualBox, which is really nice because it's 100% free. Uh, it works pretty well, uh, and I, it's available for Windows, Linux, and OS 10. I believe all all three platforms. Uh, kind of the rival there, the other popular option would be VMware's Workstation, which is also totally free. Uh, has pretty much all the same options. The difference is uh, Workstation requires you get a license key. It's free, but you basically just have to agree to receive marketing emails from VMware. Uh, so if you really like VMware and that's what you want to go with, it, you, know, you can just then market with spam or something later. Uh, but either one will get the job done uh, to get you started. And if you're downloading VMs from the Internet, they should work in either one. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, stepping up from there, there are some paid options. Uh, the one that I that I personally use is VMware uh, Fusion, because uh, that's the the OS ten version. And then there's Workstation Pro, which is available for Windows. the uh, The price tag on that is between eighty to two hundred dollars, depending on which version you buy. Uh, and then once you have it, you have that version forever. Um, but when they come out with a new version, which usually happens annually, there's an upgrade fee of fifty dollars. I think for for any version. Uh, the nice thing there is if you if you pay for that, you get some additional options like snapshots are really big, uh, right. are really really nice. Um, being able to easily take those because that lets you take a snapshot of a VM, and it's it's really easy to restore it in case okay, you screw something up or you want to install a bunch of patches so you can test something without that patch installed and then quickly revert back to a fully patched machine. Uh, or vice versa, you can do that. Uh, they also uh, the paid option allows linked clones, which is a cool option that lets you set up. Uh, so I kind of consider this as being more of a, a maybe a blue team if you're interested in setting up like a network mm -hmm. and trying to secure it or just connecting a bunch of VMs together, uh, and you want them all to be Ubuntu 14. You can set up one Ubuntu box and then set up a bunch of linked clones. So you have your based image. And then the linked clones all link back to that one, so they'll stay updated. They'll stay the same as that one VM. You don't have to maintain a bunch of them at the same time. Uh, but if you're just getting started, starting off with the free one, like VirtualBox, will is perfectly fine, and that'll probably contain all the options you need uh, that you'll you may ever want until you start getting into maybe some more advanced stuff. Right. So once we have the VM set up, what's what's the next step? Uh, so the next step from there, uh, I would say, would be you want to get your sort of your base machine, uh, which might be like a Kali machine, or if you prefer to start fresh and build up, you know, build up your own custom machine. Maybe that's an Ubuntu machine that you'll install your tools onto. Um, whatever it is that that you want to either create clones of, or that you're going to be using, say, to attack the other VMs you install. Uh, so. Uh, like for a red team, a red team lab is probably your your basic Kali VM, uh, and then uh, 
to start to adding other stuff, you can actually download a lot of the VMs just from the internet, or you're going to start downloading ISOs uh, to to install. And just like if you were setting up a new server or a new laptop, you you'll mount that ISO uh, when you're creating the new VM. It'll ask you for the image. You'll tell it where it is. It'll mount it in sort of a virtual CD-ROM drive, and you'll install it on that new virtual machine, just like if you were installing it on a physical server sitting on your desk. Yeah, and a lot of these places should have walkthroughs like that on how to set mm-hmm. up each one. Although the ISO I've always found is just kind of more you configure the computer the way you want and just and even if even if you if you don't even like that part, you can just pretty much hit defaults and you're pretty much good to go. So it's yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's it's pretty easy to set up um and and at least get going. And what's really nice is uh, a few of them, a, a few companies out there actually will offer uh, just pre, you, know, you can just download the virtual machine version um, instead of actually getting having to get the ISO and set everything up from scratch. Offensive Security maintains along with those, uh, with the images, they maintain uh, both VMware and VirtualBox specific uh, versions of Kali. So you can just download one of those and import it into your VM software of choice and you're up and running without having to set up everything. It's with their recommended uh, settings for the VM. It already has a, a disk. Everything's installed. Everything's set up. You just boot it up like it was already, you know, already installed ages ago and was just waiting for you to, you know, to come in and update. You know, I'll say I've taken a couple SANS training courses and I'll say that those are pretty good for if you don't know how to build a home lab that they'll walk you through like as part of the training because that's a lot of what they do is they, they do more. They do a lot of hands on stuff, particularly with like the hacking and the web application courses and like they show you essentially how to set it up. So if you if someone's got like a SANS course coming up, that's a great opportunity to get started with building a home lab. Those courses are expensive though. So I wouldn't use it. Yeah, they are. Like you can just go do a home lab, but like if you have SANS training or you can get your company to pay for SANS training and you're that those, some of those courses will show you how to set up a lab, which is uh, which I think is really beneficial. Um, so where do we go from there? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of it. I mean, there's not yeah, really, it's, it's, it's it, like you can kind of do, and there's so much stuff out there. We can't cover it all in one podcast. Um, I think uh, this is going to be a series uh, where we are going to dive into some of the more specific ones and how to like walk step by step and what you can do some of the things with it. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess we can kind of step out of the VM world now and kind of step into more spe- – and we've talked about it already, but more specific stuff on the internet as far as uh, doing home labs when you don't necessarily – you know, you don't want to do all the hardware requirements. All, like we said, this isn't a lot of hardware requirements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but like you already said, once you get to this point in the lab setup process, say you have VirtualBox set up, you have a Kali VM on it, it's running – uh, at that point, you can. There's so much you can do, like you said. It's, we we can't get it all into this one episode. You can. Well, and, there's so many different options for you to start uh, exploring, but well, there well, is but, so much also just available online that you well, can with, start I guess, right away. I guess we should talk about guides. Uh, so, like, uh, I think it's offensive security has like walkthrough guides, correct? As far as like yeah, yeah, doing yeah, some do, of the hacking going on. Yeah. Um, uh, one. Offensive security has some. Uh, also, Rapid Seven has. Uh, so, if you're if you're interested in Red Team, one of the first uh, one of the first VMs probably that you want to download is Metasploitable Two, uh, which kind of, as the name suggests, 
It's a very vulnerable machine that's meant for you to, to uh, load up Metasploits on Kali and just start attacking it. Uh, you run an MMAP scan on it, it has dozens of stuff open, it's all vulnerable, and you can just go to town. Uh, and Rapid7 has a guy that walks through like 12 or so attacks, uh, detailing how, you know, how to do it, how you would have found it on your own, uh, and, and how to carry out those attacks. And I know like, one of the things I recommend to the, to the people going after the OSCP is if they are waiting to get started, go after Metasploitable, follow the guide if you're unfamiliar with uh, Metasploit, but then take a step back, forget Metasploit, and, and research and see what you can do to manually exploit uh, you know, the, uh, the vulnerabilities on Metasploitable too. And you can learn a lot just from having to go find the scripts on exploit DB, downloading them, modifying them to attack Metasploitable, and and seeing what you can do with it. And that's just one VM. <laughs> right, right. Well, and so uh, we're kind of running short on time here. So online CTFs. Uh, there's the SANS Holiday Hack Challenge, which happens every time around Christmas time, uh, and that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had like an eight-bit game for the for last year's where you know a lot of people hop yeah, on. It was and, so fun. Yeah. Um, then there's yeah, still available. Yeah, and it's still available, so you can actually get a guide and go through and do some of this stuff if if uh, you you're just getting started with it. So um, and that, I think that's really good. Uh, there's also over the wire, uh, and and there's constantly online CTS. I've seen a ton of them. Uh, it's just a matter of finding them, and I, I believe in the show notes. Uh, I'll go ahead and add. The online CTF, like there's like a directory out there that, that has like just a whole bunch of online CTFs. Uh, so definitely, definitely that. And then uh, I get the other thing I want to mention is the books. Um, there's a ton of great books. We've already I've already talked about two of them with Chris Sanders and Data Driven Security. Uh, there's a Web Application Hackers Handbook for Web Application Security, which walks through Burp. So if you're going to get an application security, Burp is going to be your your number one tool. Uh, and that whole book, it's a big massive book is we'll walk through some of that. So once you've got something vulnerable up, like uh, OWASP Bricks, or like you said, the... the, uh, the broken what, Web App Project. Yeah, bro- Broken Web App Project, um, or something like Goat.js or something, you can walk through that book and it'll you know show you how to do that. And then you can go to your lab and try out some of those techniques. Because I, for me, like doing it hands-on is where I learned the best. I can you know read something, but that doesn't help it stick as much. Yeah, that actually goes back to our early point of why would you want a lab, and that that's another reason. A lot of the books out there, uh, like Web App, uh, Web Application Hackers Handbook, there's also uh, Hackers Playbook, uh, version one and two. Uh, both of those books, yeah, you could sit down and read it, but they would be so boring. And yep. also, some of them are just <laughs> not great reads. You know, right. they're full of great technical information, but they're not. It's just technical stuff you're reading through trying to you know slog through uh, but a lot of them are kind of made for hey here's an example or some of them even contain like here's a website you can target or here's my the author's, author's website I'm going to target it with my tools and you can you know the book gives you permission to do the same uh, and if you're just reading it it might go and you know go right out of your head after you read it but if you can follow along way more interesting and you're probably going to learn a whole lot more too yep and I think that's a good point to wrap up. So look for, we'll be doing more on this stuff, diving into certain topics. There's a lot of stuff here. It's just a matter of, you know, Googling for it and figuring out what you want to do. So Chris, uh, thank you for joining me for how to build a home lab. Uh, what would you like to plug? 
I don't have too much going on myself, but uh, as you already mentioned, Tim, you and I will probably be making appearances at Circle City Con as well as B-Sides Detroit slash Converge. Um, if we're not speaking there, I'll still probably be around there, and there are great conferences to go to, so so check those out. Uh, well, and, well and we can we can do our like we can do like a hallway talk. So if you come yeah, up to us, we can. Heck, I I might even whip out my my uh, my laptop and we can go. You know, we can go back up to the hotel room and just just show people. I show people in the in the hallway. I don't care. That's, that's fine. <laughs> there we go. I will yeah, be. We'll, a sh- we'll prove just how portable the home lab is. We'll just right. right. Exactly. Bring ours into the hallway. Well, and so that's the other thing is con are great for CTFs too. So go in there and that's not really home lab-ish, but I, I mean, that's where you can kind of go out and test your skills, uh, which which would be a good thing. So those are always fun. But also I, to call back to your recent episode with uh, Mubix, you know, go to those CTFs and talk to people, you know, right. ask them about what they're doing. Maybe not while they're trying, you know. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, don't fuck them while they're trying it. But, you know, afterwards, once once that's done or they've, you know, called it a day, you go up, you can pick their brain and ask them what they were doing or you can just watch them and, and see what they're up to uh, and, and talk to those guys. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for joining me to discuss how to build a home lab. Thank you for having me. And that will do it. Hopefully you learned something. If you didn't, drop me a line on Twitter at Timothy D. Block. That's D E. B-L-O-C-K, or email me at timothy.dblock at gmail.com. Let me know what you didn't learn, and we'll cover it in a future podcast. Show notes can be found at timothydblock.com forward slash E-I-S. If you enjoyed the show, share it with others and rate it on iTunes. If you'd like to donate to the show, check out my Patreon page at P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash e i s have a good one